On the back of the bulletin is a sermon outline, and the sermon outline will be on the screen behind me. And um, this morning, going on in our study in Revelation, we are going to be looking at the third church, uh, third letter, third postcard sent to this church. Again, if we can look up here at the screen, we had Ephesus and Smyrna, and then up at the very point is Pergamon. And that's who we're going to talk about tonight. And then we're going to talk about uh, Thyatira and come right down with the other four churches. But uh, today we are at church number three. And a uh, couple things similar with the church of Ephesus, with the church here. I'll, I'll point that out to you. Uh, but in Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 17 is um, our text for our sermon this morning. The theme uh, of this is the Church of Compromise. A lot of different uh, study Bibles that I had, different things in the uh, breakdowns of Bibles. They all said that this was the compromising church. So the Church of Compromise, we're going to talk about that this morning. Reading from the New American Standard. Revelation 2, 12 through 17 says, And to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write, The one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and how you hold firmly to my name, and did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my witness my faithful one, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you, because you have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who keep teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to <clears throat> excuse me, and to commit sexual immorality. Verse 15, so you too have some who in the same way hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent, or else I am coming to you quickly and I will wage war against them with the sword of my mouth. The one who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. And I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows except the one who receives it. There's a price associated with compromise. And we see here with this church, if they keep doing the things of Balaam and the things of the Nicolaitans, the Lord was going to come and slay some of them with his word. Um, but again, there were some also, because of their stand for Christ, like Antipas here, who was martyred. They killed him because of his stand and uh, faith and belief in Jesus and in his name. So there's a price associated with compromise, and there's also a price that comes with staying true to your beliefs. Uh, 
You know, there is a, a proper time for compromise. I'm sure various things you've, you've been able to compromise on with uh, various opinions in your life. For a marriage uh, would be a good example of this. Um, maybe where you want to go out to eat, you can compromise with your spouse on that. Maybe what color you want to paint your house, you can compromise and say, I like this color, you like that, okay, how about this color, and agree. What about maybe what kind of car you buy, or what color the, the car is, or what brand, or maybe where you want to live, or where you want to work, and all of those type of things, you can compromise on those things. But when it comes to compromising God's word, there's absolutely no room for compromise. The world's philosophies and doctrines, they constantly change with the times. But God's word, it's timeless. His moral absolutes and teachings have not and they will not change. The church in Pergamum was in a situation where compromise would have been the easy road. Imagine living right where Satan had his throne. Remember, we're talking here about a figurative book. Did Satan literally have his throne here? Probably not. But what it means is the evil, the wickedness, the idolatry, the sexual immorality, the perversions, and so forth that were going on. It was like they were living right where Satan had his throne. The climate in the city of Pergamum was such that it put Christians in grave danger. So for many Christians, compromise with the godlessness going on around them was a real alternative. As we look at this city of Pergamum, again, we need to understand what the church here at Pergamum was facing, who they were dealing with. A lot of similarities with all these churches because of the culture because of the society and so forth that was taking place when uh, John wrote the letter. So you might say, oh, well, Dave, you said some of those kind of things with that city. Yeah, well, they're only 30, 40, 50 miles apart, all of these cities. And they're all in that area there of what we would call Turkey today. So we can see how they would be affected with these same things. We see this city of Pergamum was the original capital of Ionium. Rome made it a chief city of Asia, Asia Minor. Last, uh, not last week or the week before that, but the week before that when we looked at the second church, uh, Smyrna, this church here is 60 miles northeast. This is the furthest north of any of the seven churches that are talked about. And um, we see here that uh, the church that was here is still in existence today. The city has a population of around 14,000 people and around 3,000 profess to be Christians. Now, everybody professes to be a Christian even in America, but were they a Christian according to God's word? Uh, again, I'm not sure about that. But when John wrote this, this letter, this postcard here to Pergamum, it was a great city in the Roman culture. A lot of business. 
It was a flourishing city. Pergamum had a vast library. They had over 200,000 volumes, over 200,000 books and scrolls that were there. And something happened in Alexandria in Egypt started to refuse the selling of its papyrus to the city here at Pergamum. And this is where parchment paper came into being because they were so studious and wanted to write things and have their histories and so forth, we see that they developed parchment paper so that they could write their many books and their many scrolls. When we look at this city and see their their religion and so forth, Pergamum was a center of pagan uh, worship. It was a notorious center for idolatry. If you remember the the Greek gods and the things that they believed in, here was a place where they believed in Zeus, the savior. He was the chief god. He was creator of the universe and so forth. And then all the other gods kind of fell underneath him. Athena, Dionysus uh, were also widespread problems for the city uh, of Pergamum and for the church there. Also, Uh, Asclepius was another god, another Greek god, with its symbol of a snake that was intertwined around a rod. It was worshipped here. And it also contained the temple to Augustus Caesar. And they worshipped the Caesars here. Jesus says here that it is where Satan has his throne. It's the center of idolatry and heathen idolatry and worship. Many scholars think that this, where Satan has his throne, refers to a great altar of Zeus that was there in the city that overlooked the city. It looked like a great chair or a a giant throne. And it was 40 feet high. It was this massive throne or chair And they said Zeus sat on this. And uh, this thing was here. So again, Zeus with his philosophies and ideologies that would clearly go against the morals and values and standards of of God's word, they were in conflict here. Uh, The heathen society and pagan world with the Christian world and the church that was there. It was truly a, a pagan capital and qualified to be called the throne room of Satan. It's interesting to note that in the 1800s, a German archaeologist was working in Pergamum, and uh, he removed this big giant chair, or this throne. And today they say it can be seen in a museum in Pergamum. So kind of interesting. The church here was able to hold on to a key doctrine, which again, God Antipas killed, but they compromised in two other important areas. And I'd like to spend some time to develop both of these for a minute. And then we'll look at those who were overcomers and look at the three things that were given to them and comment about them briefly. So here, first off, as he does with all the churches, Jesus describes himself in verse 12. And to the angel the messenger there of the church in Pergamum, right? 
The one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this. Jesus is saying he has a a sharp two-edged sword that comes out of his mouth. Again, this sharp two-edged sword would be a symbol of the word of God. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Jesus said his words like that. It's living and it's active and it's sharp. It's able to pierce and divide and separate soul from spirit, our joints from our marrows, our thoughts, our intentions that are in our our minds. You see, a, a weapon like this if a Roman soldier was going to have a two-edged sword, it had the ability to be able to cut the skull to get to the mind. It was able to cut the heart, get into the emotions. It was able to cut the cancer of carnality, of worldliness from this congregation in Pergamum. It was sharp. It could divide these things, the intentions and the thoughts and the hearts of men. And the lamb knows where the church dwells. This is where Satan dwells, and this is where his throne is. He knows not only his church, but he knows the environment and the circumstances that are taking place there and what persecutions they're suffering. You see, nothing escapes Jesus' notice. God's word, this two-edged sword, it's going to cut through the falsehood to take us to the true reality of life and what is true through God's word so that we can be able to see things and see them for what they really are. The word of God is going to be a measuring rod that Jesus will use at the judgment. Again, it's alive, an act of penetrating the innermost parts of a person. It exposes the natural things and carnal and worldly things in the, in the that we have to go through. But it also does that with the spiritual things that are going on and how these things may affect the believer's heart and mind and behavior and actions. Remember in Acts chapter 2, verse 37, Peter's up in front of the crowd there on the day of Pentecost. He's preaching, saying that they had killed the Messiah and he's the one they had been looking for. Uh, He's a descendant of David, and he's Christ, and he's Lord. And it comes down to verse 37, and it says, Now when they heard this, when they heard the word of God, they were pierced to their heart. See, the word of God pierced their hearts. It judged them. It hit their conscience and their mind and their being, and they're like, Oh, my sins, my actions nailed Jesus to the cross. Were they actually the one pounding the nails? No. Were they the one who shoved the spear in Jesus' side? No. But again, it's all of us, is it not? Our sins nailed him there. It's like we are nailing him on the cross and stabbing that spear in him, beating him with those rods, blaspheming him and saying these things. So when they heard the word of God, it pierced their hearts. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? That's how God's word is. God's word touches mankind's intellect and reason 
pierces our conscience and our heart. We see, secondly, as always, Jesus knows this church and is able to compliment them on holding on to a key element of the Christian faith. In the midst of living in Satan's very real realm, the Pergama church here remained true and steadfast to the faith, but also it says to the name. If you read there, it says to the name of, of Jesus. Get over here where I can see this. Um, okay, I'm in the wrong place. I am sorry. <clears throat> Verse 13 says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name. You hold fast that I'm Jesus Christ that I'm the Messiah, that I'm the anointed one, that authority to be saved is going to come through me. I'm going to be the one judging you with my words on the last day, judging those people in the city, the heathen sinners, but also the church. So they're holding fast to Jesus' name, it says. And they did not deny my faith. All the things of the faith about becoming a Christian and the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ and that we should repent and confess our sins before men and be baptized and live faithful lives and come on the first day of the week and break bread and remember him and give of our tithes and our offerings back to him and to go out into the world and evangelize and tell others of the good news of the gospel. Evidently, some of them were trying to do those things there. So Jesus commends them for this. He said, this is good. <clears throat> You're standing firm for me, for my name, for who I am, and for the faith. They refused to budge on the person and the work of Jesus. They viewed Jesus Christ and defended him as the God-man, as deity, this is a teaching of the church from very, the very beginning there in the day of Pentecost. In fact, almost all heresies of false religions come out of the denial of the deity of Jesus Christ. But not here with the church of Pergamum. They were standing firm. They believed that he was the Messiah, that he was God. The church in Pergamum stood firm on this issue. It says they held fast Jesus' name and didn't deny Jesus' faith. They continued to stand firm in their position of Christ, even to the point of persecution, and where one of their mother, members there dies. We see not only did they hold to this, but they did at the risk of their lives. Antipas was a faithful servant who suffered martyrdom because he was a faithful witness of Jesus Christ. He was a faithful Christian. It says, even in the days of Antipas, against everything, against all that the city was throwing at him, living there and where Satan dwells, it says, my witness, my witness, my, my martyr, in the original language, my faithful one who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. 
I know where you're at. I know the city. I know all the perversion and wickedness and false gods and sacrificing to idols and having these feasts and eating these sacrifices with these people and the temple prostitution and all these perversions that are going on. Tradition says that Antipas was the first Christian martyr under Roman rule in Asia Minor. Tradition also goes on and says he was roasted to death. He was burned at the stake. They impaled this man on a stake and burned him. That's crazy. But this man did not back down, even unto death. He stood firm, and this church is praised for that, that there were these types of individuals here. Oh, the price that Antipas paid for his stand for Jesus against all the evil that was taking place around him. What's our stand for Jesus cost us? None of us have gone to this length. But even though they held to this core belief and were praised for it, they had two huge errors that they were committing, some of the members of the church there. They accepted the teaching of Balaam over the teaching of God. You can go and read about the teachings of Balaam and his story, how he was a prophet and uh, how Balak went and tried to, to pay him off to curse Israel and the children of Israel as they were coming and getting ready to go into the promised land. And you can read about that in Numbers chapter 22 through 25 and all that that entails. And Balaam became a false prophet, again, who the king of Moab, Balak, hired to be able to curse Israel. And... Uh, Every time he went to curse Israel, blessings came out of his mouth. And he blessed Israel. Balak got mad every time and says, what in the world? Why did I call you here to curse these people when I'm paying you and, and doing this? And every time you, you, you're bringing condemnation on me and blessing them and raising them up. <clears throat> Numbers 23.11 says, Balak said to Balaam, what have you done to me? I took you up to put a curse on my enemies, the Israelites here. But behold, you've actually blessed them. And he says it over and over again. Now, how does this Old Testament story about Balaam have anything to do with the church here? Well, because the same type of thing was going on here in Pergamum. So, back then in the Old Testament to achieve... what Balak wanted Balaam to do. He went out and he hired the, the beautiful women of Moab and of Midian to parade themselves before the young men of Israel, tempting them to be involved in sexual immorality. And by doing so, he was able to introduce to them idol, idol worship, since these women were idol worshipers. So that's what happened in the Old Testament. So what happened here? There were some who had this idea of, of Balaam. We live in this city and we want to be able to buy and sell and trade and be a part of the um, worker unions and do the things that we have to do. And so what were they doing? They were seducing them with the temple prostitutes. 
and saying, oh, look, don't you want these women and everything? And what happens? You go and marry the heathens and that. And what do they do? They affect your religious beliefs and your stand in Christianity. Christians should marry Christians. Non-Christians can marry non-Christians, but Christians shouldn't marry non-Christians. Why? Because of what happened here. And some of these individuals got caught up in this sexual immorality and then they started to go to these temple places if it was for Zeus or uh, worshiping Caesar or whatever. Dionysus. And they're involved in these things. You see, this bad stuff. Jesus said, I'm coming down on you. I'll slay you with my words. I'm going to judge you. You're in trouble. You do these things. And then they're off doing what? Then they're eating with them and sacrificing to false idols and gods. That's what they did. They made it sacrifices that these gods and they took those things and they ate them in their temples. You see, this was bad. Balaam tried to entice Israel to sin in this way and got Israel to fall. Now Pergamon had those who were doing the same thing. Pagan worshipers were enticing Christians to worship false gods, have sexual immorality with them in these temples. Well, what's that have to do with us, Dave? In our day, there's similar activity going on amongst professing Christians. What about some who regularly view pornography? What about some who are involved in fornication, sex outside of marriage? What about some who are accepting living in, living together without being married? That's fornication. That's sexual immorality. These are heirs of Balaam. We need to repent of these things. We see that the church at Pergamum had a passion and a devotion to the faith and to Jesus. But they accepted the teachings and practices of Balaam and also of the Nicolaitans over the teaching of God. The devil, he could not scandalize the faith of the Christians at Pergamum by threatening martyrdom. So he put a stumbling block of immorality and idolatry before them in the person or the teachings of the Nicolaitans. The Nicolaitans tried to influence the church in Ephesus, the first church that we looked at there in Revelation chapter 2. But they hated their works and they turned them down. The Nicolaitans were a group of heretics who taught and practiced sexual immorality, idolatry. Some church fathers connected this sect with Nicholas of the seven deacons there in the Acts the sixth chapter in the church of Jerusalem. This guy must have started out good. According to what they're saying, he moved up here and started teaching this, that it was okay to compromise. It's okay because we live here. We can do these things. We can eat these foods idled, that are sacrificed to idols. We can be involved in this sexual immorality and so forth. The Nicolaitans also claimed to have the inside track to God. Special revelation they presumed to take the place of the Jewish priesthood. They said, you need to listen to us. It's been said that the Nicolaitans actually encouraged idol worship. They denied God as the creator of the world. And who did they say was the creator? Zeus. Amon Olympus. He's the one who made us all. 
Wow. They're attributing the acts of God to false gods and powers. Also, the Nicolaitans, they indulged in fleshly lusts and immorality that ran rampant. And they taught that Christians had liberty and had the license and the freedom to be able to commit sexual immorality. You know, we need to beware of those who elevate themselves above others in their relationship to God. Beware of those who teach and command what is condemned in God's word because they often become God, little G's, in their own eyes. The best way to handle both of these heirs is with the two-edged sword, it says here. Verse 16. And what else does he say? Repent. If you're following Balaam's doctrine or you're following the Nicolaitans' doctrine, repent of these things. Stop it. Or else I'm going to come quickly and I'm going to wage war against them. I'm going to wage war against those in the church that are doing this. I'm going to wage war with the pagan society that's doing these things. With the sword of my mouth. Jesus is telling them they needed to repent. Jesus is telling them to refrain from being involved in these sins of idolatry and sexual morality. This church is commanded and warned to change its mind about these teachings, to change its conduct of some of its members. Jesus is giving this church a choice. If it does not repent, then the Lamb, the divine Son of God, He's going to come and make war. He's going to slay some of them with the sword, the word of God of His mouth. And if it, they don't repent of these things, sexual immorality and idolatry, they were in trouble. We see here that for those who overcome these errors and will not compromise, they will receive a reward. First off, they're going to receive hidden manna. What's manna? That was food that came from heaven, right? That God gave Moses to feed Israel in the wilderness. Excuse me. <clears throat> Hidden manna. <clears throat> food God gave Moses to feed the children in the wilderness. That food there was a type. That manna was a type of who? Jesus, the anti-type. John 6:41 says, "I am the bread from heaven." Jesus is saying, you got to eat me. I'm the real bread. I'm the real manna. See, Jesus is the hidden manna. Don't go and sacrifice these idols and go into these temples and do that. Stop it. Come and eat me. Come and eat my word. Come and get the spiritual food that you need that will help you with the physical life and society and things that you're dealing with. Jesus said in John 6, 6 63, it is the Spirit who gives life, and the flesh provides no benefit. The words that I've spoken to you are spirit and are life. They're, they're eternal life. This is what you need. Come eat my hidden manna. He also says that a white stone is going to be given to them with a new name that only the one who receives that white stone is going to know what that means. 
You see, what, what did these white stones represent? I came up with a, these different reasons. These white stones, they were given for honorable discharge, maybe out of military service. You, you're retired. You don't have to be called to fight in the legions or anything anymore. Uh, your service is done. Here's your white stone. You can use this to show people, hey, I've done my, my, my job. I'm free of this. It could also be given to a Roman gladiator who had to fight and risk his life over and over and over again. But what happened? He was able to win every time. He was able to win over the public and they liked him. So what happened? He was giving the white stone, which allowed him to be able to retire from further combat and fighting. Also, a white stone was something that showed special favor between friends. You know how boyfriends and girlfriends like each other in school and everything, and they get these little things, and there's a little, little half of a heart and another half of a heart, and you put them together, and they make a whole heart. And they're cute, and kids like those things and everything. Well, here, they did these with the white stones. Somebody that was really special and everything to you, you could chop the white stone in half and say, here, hon, here, Laura, you take half and I got half. And it was special. It was important. It meant something. Those who won in the Olympic Games and in the races and so forth that they had were given white stones as victors whenever they would uh, do a good job. Somebody who was acquitted of a crime or something was given a white stone, where a black stone was a symbol of guilt. So the, the white stone kind of has this symbol of justification and innocence and victory and being able to retire for, for good work. You see, our work isn't done until we're in heaven. We need to be working and serving our master and combat and loyalty and he's going to one day give us a white stone and say good job well done thy faithful servant great is your reward come in and then on this there was a secret name this was a sign of intimacy it showed a, a distinctive a character between you and the person that gave you this stone with this secret name. Maybe it's kind of like a nickname or like a pet name. My wife has a, a couple for me, like Pig Boy and so forth. No, I'm teasing. <laughs> but I'll call her on the phone and I'll say little things to her. All right, honey, I'll talk with you later, whatever. They're terms of endearment and things that her and I share with each other when we talk to each other. And She'll say things back to me, and it's just showing that we're, we're intimate, we're close, that we love each other, that she's special to me, and that I'm special at, little, at least a little bit to her, right? But in God's eyes, when we're these Christians that are going to stand firm, even unto death, and be martyred for the cause of Christ, and we're able to battle all these things that society's throwing at us, because that's Satan's realm, that's Satan's throne. That's Satan's world out there. If we're overcomers, we're going to be able to have this hidden manna. We're going to have this white stone. We're going to have this secret and special name that he's going to give us. Satan's active and he wants you. And he will try to get you either through intimidating you, through 
danger of harm or enticing you into sin. The temptation he gives is to try to get you to strike a compromise. Maybe you just won't completely dive in off the 100-foot cliff like some cliff diver or something, but maybe he can get you to wade into the water a little bit. Maybe he can get you to sit there on the fence and have a little bit of compromising and say, yeah, it's okay. But you know what? There's no reward for the compromiser here in our text. It's only for the overcomer. If you submit to Jesus and keep your heart pure before him, you'll enjoy intimacy with him. You'll grow stronger and stronger for God in your faith. And you'll be able to get that new name signifying a new relationship, an intimate one with him. Do you have that kind of relationship with the Savior today? If not, what are you waiting for? The men are going to come forward. We're going to stand and be singing our hymn of invitation. And it's easy to become a Christian. The hard things have been done for us. But if you're here and you realize, yes, I, I realize Christ died on Calvary's cross for my sins. And I believe that, that he's the Christ, the son of the living God. And I'm willing to confess him at this time right now that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then after I become a Christian, to confess him every day until I die and leave this life or until Christ returns. And I'm going to repent from the things of the world and the sin and so forth of the world and turn to God. And then I'm going to be immersed. I'm going to take that old man of sin and I'm going to bury him in that watery grave Leave him there, and I'm going to come up out of that watery grave, a new creature in Christ, born again. And then I'm going to be able, need to be able to live a faithful life until the end, to receive that crown of life. We're going to stand, we're going to sing our hymn of invitation, and if you're here and need to make that decision now, won't you please come?